Hello and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Here again for the 45th time, if you can believe it, with another hour of geeky news, views, information and general techie kind of stuff. I don't know, we, we, we sort of had a very clear mission statement once and it's got a bit blurry. But the world of geek is pretty encompassing, so it's basically got to be stuff that I'm geeky about, which is most things. But regular listeners to the show will know that one of the most important things, to me at least, is stuff that flies. So we're going to start with... So, space. What is going on? Well, quite a lot. And actually quite a lot of it is still in response to everything surrounding the conflict in Ukraine. It's driving some unlikely partnerships. Uh, the latest is between the UK satellite company OneWeb and SpaceX. Now, if you have been listening to this show for any length of time at all, you know about SpaceX. That is Elon Musk's space company. And of all the companies operated by billionaire Bond villains, SpaceX is by far the most successful and just frankly, just the most useful. It remains the only private company really with the capability to reliably put stuff in orbit. It is certainly the only private company that is capable of putting people into orbit. And that's turning out to be something that it's a really good job we've got in the West. When we talk about the knock-on effects that Western countries are experiencing as a result of isolating Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, we talk a lot about energy, oil, gas, that kind of thing. And do you know what? Those things are important. If you've driven past a petrol station recently, there's a reason petrol and diesel are as expensive as they are. But that's not the only thing that the West has allowed in recent years Russia to gain something of a global monopoly on. If you are a Western company and you want to put something into space, you basically have had to turn to Roscosmos and the Soyuz launch vehicle. The Americans do provide space for commercial launch, but not actually that much. And the European Space Agency does have the Ariane 5, seems to be the Ariane 6 rocket, which is without question, without question, the best means of putting anything in orbit. The Ariane system is by far the most advanced and reliable launch vehicle currently being used. But it comes with a price. An Ariane launch is really, really expensive. And I'm talking even by space standards. OK, so you're probably not going to want to go with ESA. You probably can't afford to go with ESA. The Americans probably don't have space for you unless you're actually American. So where else do you go? The Chinese won't have you. Maybe India, maybe Pakistan will have some capability at some point. But again, nothing particularly reliable. So pre-SpaceX, and SpaceX has only really been a viable option for a couple of years, the only game in town was the Russian Soyuz system, which I have to say is the very acme of tried and tested. It's, they've been using this system for decades. It's very simple in you know relative terms. There's nothing simple about going to space, but you know what I mean. It's extremely reliable and it's relatively cheap. So it's been the delivery system, the launch system of choice for private enterprise for some time. Except, of course, now it's not. Because even if Western companies were prepared to do business with Russia, and let's be honest, that's not a good look right now. Uh, most people wouldn't want to be associating their company with the, with the Soviet Union. Blimey, there's a flashback. With the Russians, simply, you know, whatever their principles, this, the optics of that would be bad for business. But even if they were prepared to do business with Russia, Russia won't do business with them. Uh, Roscosmos has banned Western companies from using launch space. Now, there will be knock-on effects for Roscosmos for this. Launching other people's stuff into space has been a major revenue stream for an agency which is you know, pretty cash-strapped. 
Russia is not the Soviet Union. It doesn't have the kind of resources that the Soviet Union once had. So, you know, Roscosmos will suffer for this, but in the meantime, Western companies need to get their stuff into orbit. And that's where SpaceX comes in. Now, as you say, we know who SpaceX are, but who are OneWeb? Well, OneWeb are a UK-based, partly government-owned satellite company that is in the same satellite internet market as SpaceX's own Starlink system. Basically, what OneWeb wants to do is make high-speed internet globally available by having a constellation of satellites in orbit, uh, which could be picked up by you know internet through satellite ground stations, that kind of thing. Now, we're probably going to do an episode on this kind of thing at some point, because I have reservations about these constellation systems. They clearly are effective. Uh, we've reported previously on how Musk sent uh, Starlink uh, ground stations to um, Tonga after the earthquake and tsunami. And he's also sent ground stations to Ukraine, although I'm not entirely sure how effective they've been, because Starlink doesn't actually have great coverage over that part of Europe at the moment. But still, the thought's there, and it does provide support that really can't be provided any, any other way. So I can't put my hand on my heart now and say we absolutely should not do these things. But there are still some very serious side effects that I don't think have been properly thought through. Uh, there is a serious damage that these things can do to the possibilities of ground-based astronomy. Essentially, there are going to be satellites in the way. The, you know, these things will be visible from Earth, and you know, there's going to be tens of thousands of them up there. And that's the other problem. There is already too much stuff in space. Literally tens of thousands of little CubeSats, all in the same kind of orbit, are just going to be a navigational nightmare. So you know, that's something that needs to be addressed. In the meantime, it's kind of interesting that SpaceX is supporting OneWeb in this way. I, I kind of like the, the, the geek community solidarity that's on view there, because they are direct rivals. OneWeb and Starlink will be competing for business. But Elon Musk is the kind of guy who, first of all, will take anybody's money, and second of all, does seem to be genuinely quite gung-ho about sticking it to the Russians over Ukraine. This is a man who actually offered to have a fist fight with Putin, which even for Musk, who is given to saying outrageous things from time to time, is a whole new level. I, 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 to, to suggest that he might have a fist fight with Putin in Kiev, which is a city whose mayor is Vitaly Klitschko, one of the greatest heavyweight boxers who has ever walked the earth, is... Well, I'm just going to call it a level of hubris and move on, I think. Uh, but I, I genuinely think, again, if you listen to this show often, you know my issues with Elon Musk. I am not in any way a fan of the guy. Uh, I don't like his business practices. I don't like his vision for the future. I don't like where he wants to take humanity. But he does seem to be genuine about this. And I, I kind of like the idea that he's prepared to help out a rival. So, you know, reluctant kudos to Elon Musk, I guess. Okay, moving on to something truly exciting. And honestly, this is brilliant. I'm old enough to remember the first exoplanet being found way back in 1995. And it seemed then just an impossible thing. How on earth could we possibly have detected a planet around another star? And uh, my mind was completely blown. Well, it's continued to be blown ever since because they keep finding them. And NASA have announced this week that they have identified the 5,000th exoplanet. Now, that's amazing. It's 35, 40 years ago, our knowledge of planets was limited to our own solar system. Now we know of 5,000 worlds orbiting distant suns across this massive galaxy of ours. Now, 
Does it mean anything other than ticking over a milestone? Not really. We know very little about these planets. Uh, we know how big some of them are. We know that there are um, small, rocky, Earth-like worlds. We know that there are gas giants much bigger than our own gas giant, Jupiter. And something that they call hot Jupiters, which are in really close orbits around their stars. There are super-Earths which are rocky worlds much bigger than ours, and mini-Neptunes, tiny little glass, gas, gas planets. Not glass planets, that would be weird. So much variety. I guess I was a sci-fi geek before I was a science geek, and my vision of space was largely formed watching reruns of Star Trek, the original series. It wasn't called that then, it was just called Star Trek, because there hadn't been any others back in the 70s at my grandma's house. And it's that opening spiel that Captain Kirk does, the final frontier. Our mission to seek out new life and new civilizations. Now, is there life and civilizations on any of these 5,000 planets? Statistically, the odds say no. Life is, as far as we can tell, incredibly difficult to get started. And we've got no evidence at the moment of any kind of life beyond the limits of our own atmosphere, except, you know, the International Space Station. There are folk there. So that's not why this is exciting. We're not going to be talking to aliens soon. But it shows us that, first of all, we can spot these things. We can find them, which makes it more likely that if there is a world that supports intelligent life, we'll see it. And also, once we've identified them, we can then start to develop instruments that can tell us more about them. We can use spectroscopy to analyse their atmospheres. We can work out what the surface temperatures would be, whether they would be capable of having water. We can see if they've got an atmosphere at all. There's all kinds of things we can do once we've found them. But we need to find them in order to understand the instruments we, we need to develop to get that information. And as always with these cosmic things, some of you I know will be thinking, yeah, but what's the point? Whenever going there, it's not possible that a human could su survive long enough to make such a journey to even the closest of the exoplanets we've found. And even if they could live long enough to make the trip, the cosmic radiation would almost certainly kill them. So what are we doing? And it's almost, almost a valid question. But it's not quite. For me, as a geek, everything comes down to curiosity, to wanting to know stuff. Einstein himself said that imagination is more important than knowledge, and he was very right in that. And... The search for exoplanets, the exploration of deep space, even if it's only by observation, is a powerful fuel to imagination. And we can't actually say that the knowledge we gain about other worlds isn't useful knowledge. It's not useful at the moment, but there are all kinds of knowledge that didn't seem important at the time it was discovered but which subsequently became important. The search for exoplanets, the exploration of deep space, is about optimism. It's about the belief that there is stuff out there that's worth knowing. And honestly, at times like these, particularly at times like these, as we come out of a pandemic that is still going on, incidentally, uh, and grapple with the, the fact, not even the possibility, but the fact of a, a major war in Europe, we need some optimism and we need to be focusing our attention on, on stuff that isn't just about that. So what is it that we know? What have we found? Well, of the 5,000 plus, it's actually more than 5,000 now, of the 5,000 plus exoplanets that we have identified thus far, the majority of them, 35%, are what NASA refers to as Neptune-like. So they're roughly the same size as Neptune or Uranus. Um, 
they can be icy uh, or on very rare occasions they can be warm. Warm Neptunes are actually quite rare. Um, the next most frequently found 31% of those 5,000 plus planets are in the category of super Earth. So these are rocky planets that are between the size of our own planet Earth and Neptune. Now, we don't have anything like that in our solar system. So it's interesting to note that these things exist. We wouldn't have even known of their existence in any other way. And then 30% are gas giants. You know, Saturn or Jupiter-like planets, uh, or even bigger. And as some of these, if they are really, really big, uh, the, the gravitational pressure uh, and compression of the gases that make up the planet mean that some of these massive gas giants are actually hotter than some stars. And this is where we get into a kind of tricky sort of grey area where it's not entirely clear. It, now, is that a small star or is that a big gas giant? It's, you know, it's not necessarily clear cut. Uh, now, if you've been doing the maths, you will realise that we have got up to 96%. So what is the 4% that remains? Well, those are terrestrial planets. Planets that are small and rocky, around the size of Earth or a little smaller, of the, you know, the kind of planet uh, that we have in our own solar system. We, we have these in our solar system. We have Mars and we have Venus. Um, and planets like that, which most scientists and astronomers uh, and astrobiologists feel are the most likely candidates for life as we would recognise it. Um, that's really rare. They're really rare. So, again, it means the Drake equation, which is the equation that we use to sort of guesstimate how many civilizations may exist. It means the Drake equation is smaller than we thought, but it's still huge. And, you know, we now have accurate data to start doing a proper calculation because, you know, the, the Drake equation is, is for show as much as anything else. It's a, a demonstration kind of thing. But we now know that most stars have planets. So if most stars have got planets and 4% of those planets are of the type of planet that is likely to support life, that means there is a massive number. I mean, in the trillions of planets in this galaxy that potentially could be hospitable to our kind of life, the kind of life that we would recognise as such. Now, even if only one-tenth of one percent of that four percent actually does have life, that's still millions, if not billions, of planets with life on them. So, I think what we're seeing here with this research is the very real possibility of some kind of life existing somewhere in this galaxy. It suggests that it is extremely unlikely that Earth is unique. And I find that comforting. I really do. I mean, as I said, we're not going to meet ET anytime soon. If ever, the distances involved and the passage of time involved is so huge. But amidst all the bad news, amidst everything that's going on in the world, I find it comforting to be able to look up at the stars and imagine with some confidence that somewhere out there, somebody is looking back. But speaking of looking up, what is there to see in the night sky this week? Well, I hate to break it to you, but all of the planetary action is still, still in the pre-dawn sky. But if you happen to be an early riser, there are some great views to be had of Venus, uh, which is shining very, very brightly uh, in the eastern sky in the pre-dawn, with uh, the reddish Mars and the yellowish Saturn slightly lower. You may, if you are in a built-up area, still struggle 
to see Mars and Saturn because they really are very low on the horizon and therefore quite likely to be behind something. No planets in the evening sky at the moment, but you can get some really, really good views of uh, the constellations of Orion and the Pleiades. Um, more information on all of this and links to the Planetary Society's um, WhatsApp page in the show notes. Um, lots of information at the Planetary Society uh, about getting into astronomy and picking the best telescope and just what to look for with the naked eye. So do check that out if you have any interest at all. Uh, show notes, as ever, can be found at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Uh, just click on the blog button and scroll for Geeking with Destination Venus, episode 45. And with that, that's it for space. Okay, I, I was going to drop the next bit into the science segment, but it isn't really science, it's engineering. But it's interesting, and it's to do with flight, so it, it's going in. Uh, you will have come across, I am sure, the dreadful plane crash in China um, in the last week. Obviously, we don't know that many details, but it is worth just having a look at what has actually gone on. And I want to start by sending the sincerest condolences I possibly can to the families of the 123 passengers and nine crew who were aboard the flight, all of whom are... I, was, I don't think we've found bodies yet, but I, they are not alive. Uh, it's tragic, but it's true. What makes this crash interesting from a aviation point of view is how unusual it is. China has an incredibly good aviation safety record. Chinese planes don't crash. And so this would be unusual in any case. I think this is the, the worst uh, air accident in China for three decades. Um, so, you know, as I said, these things do not happen now in China. Uh, which perhaps is why uh, it has such a profound in impact on the Chinese people uh, who are treating this like a, a real national disaster. Uh, President Xi Jinping has called for a full-scale investigation, uh, as you know you would expect from uh, a, a, the downing of a plane like this. And they have now find, found the flight recorder, so uh, we, we can hope to get some answers uh, relatively soon. But the other thing that makes this unusual is that it's a 737. And the 737 also has an extraordinarily good safety record. It's not to be confused with the 737 MAX, also uh, built by Boeing, which has a significantly less good safety record and I think is still grounded in China. Uh, this is the regular 737. It's a tried and tested, incredibly reliable design. So... It's difficult to imagine what on earth has happened. Uh, the Chinese Aviation Authority uh, has said that you know all the appropriate maintenance had been done, all the appropriate checks had been carried out, uh, the plane had been cleared as completely airworthy, yet there was no sign of trouble. This doesn't seem to be a story where you know at some point a whistleblower is going to appear and say, oh, we know we, we knew that maintenance was terrible with that company and it doesn't seem we're going to get that whatever happened it does seem to have happened extraordinarily quickly um, according to online sources and this is all we have um, i don't think any of this is confirmed by the chinese aviation authorities uh, but i've been checking out the flight radar 24 website which monitors all kinds of civil aviation traffic and According to Flight Radar 24, the plane was cruising at you know, sort of normal altitude, really, normal cruising altitude for a 737, about 29,000 feet. It lost 20,000 feet in less than two and a half minutes. That's an outrageously rapid descent. I can only think of a couple of 
things that would cause that to happen. One, obviously, is uh, a deliberate or accidental action by the people flying the plane. Um, these things have happened before. You may remember there was a, a plane that crashed in the Alps a few years ago where um, the the pilot was suffering from um, some kind of psychiatric issue and just deliberately flew the plane into the side of the mountain. That doesn't seem likely here because the plane did actually then level off at 9,000 9, or so feet. So, you know, if, if they'd wanted, to, if somebody aboard had actually wanted to crash the plane, they'd have crashed it. And they didn't. There was an attempt here to recover the aircraft. So it wasn't that. The only reason I can think of for such a rapid descent is if there had been a cabin depressurization. And so they needed to get to a lower altitude so that people could breathe. That must have been terrifying. If that's the case, that must have been terrifying. And in all honesty, I kind of hope it wasn't that, because that would have been a horrible way to go. That then leaves some kind of technical failure, which seems unlikely. Just, I mean, of course it's not impossible, but it seems unlikely because, as I say, Chinese aviation has an extremely good safety record, uh, an extremely good record of um, excellent maintenance of their aircraft. And the Boeing 737 itself has a very strong safety record. There are thousands of these things in service around the world. And this aircraft was not an old one. It was actually less than seven years old, which is, you know, an infant as far as airliners go. So we can't possibly say exactly what happened to flight MU5735, but we will get an answer eventually. Um, the air accident investigators, as I say, have found the, the flight recorder. They will find the wreckage and they will figure it out. In the meantime, you might be wondering, do I still take that flight? Well, there are all kinds of reasons to try and not fly. Um, most of them are environmental. None of them, if you're flying with a UK airline, needs to be to do with safety. Air travel is still, statistically, by far the safest way to travel. You are significantly more likely to be killed driving to the airport than you are to be involved in a plane crash. So take some heart from that. I will be watching this with great interest. Because I do not like it when planes fall out of the sky. That's not what they're supposed to do. But we'll leave that there for now. Elsewhere in tech, and again in the world of uh, unintended consequences, it turns out there's another tech issue affecting the Russians following their invasion of Ukraine. As has been widely reported, um, Western businesses started pulling out of Russia Pretty much immediately after the invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th, uh, Google, Meta, Facebook, if you will, Apple, and you know a lot of other tech companies have either left already or are winding down their operations in Russia. Uh, sometimes, on, as a as a sort of stated, we are a business with principles uh, stance, uh, mostly due to sanctions enforced by Europe and the United States, making it impossible for them to do business there. Um, Russia can probably cope without Facebook, to be honest, but it's now experiencing a much more serious problem. Uh, the Russian news outlet uh, Commerzant is citing government sources, so it seems to be legit, and is reporting that Russia is running out of um, cloud storage. Um, it just doesn't have enough data for servers and, and crucial IT kit. Uh, the Ministry of Digital Transformation uh, apparently had a meeting on March the 9th um, with various tech companies. And a source has stated that the departure of foreign cloud services like Google and uh, Amazon Web Services uh, has increased the demand on local Russian storage. And they confidently expect 
that capacity will be completely exhausted within the next two months, which could have the effect, well, will almost certainly have the effect, if they can't figure this out, um, of non-essential services such as uh, online gaming, music streaming, video sharing platforms, all that kind of stuff, being shut down. Now, that may not sound like a massive deal, but in fact, think how important all of those online services have become over the last two years. People are used to having them. And if they're suddenly taken away, people are going to start asking why. Now, it's very clear that misinformation about the invasion of Ukraine is pretty common in the Russian media. People in Russia appear to be being confidently told that the Russians are moving from victory to easy victory, uh, that they're fighting and defeating Nazis, and you know all the usual propaganda that governments like to spew in these circumstances. When their streaming services get turned off, they're going to start asking questions about why that is. And there's only so far the regime can push the this is all the fault of the West, everyone's ganging up on us narrative without beginning to ask, well, why doesn't everybody like us? Are we the baddies? And when that starts to happen, some action might start to be taken by the people of Russia to bring an end to the conflict in Ukraine. I really hope so. This is one of the things that geekiness can do. Of course, there are ways the Russian state can get around this. Uh, they could just build more data centres, although I wonder where they'll get the equipment to do that with. Uh, prices of that kind of stuff are ramping up. Russia is not exactly rolling in cash at the moment, and there are not that many places that are going to be happy to give them a line of credit. Were I the Russian authorities, I'd be looking to see if foreign providers like AWS or Google had any actual physical data centres within the country, because obviously the Russian government could just seize those and operate them themselves. But I would have thought there weren't that many. So that may not be a viable option. But again, every week we seem to be coming up with these things that are direct results of Russia's actions in Ukraine, but that you just wouldn't have thought of before the consequences started dropping. Again, we will keep an eye on this, and if there are any interesting developments, we will, of course, keep you informed. But for now, we're going to leave tech, and we're going to move on and talk about comics, because it's about time we had a bit of light relief. Okay, there are a lot of great first issues on the rack this week, and we're going to start with something that is sort of ties in with Geeky TV. Obviously, you will be aware that Stranger Things is coming back with season four very soon. Long, long awaited, obviously delayed by COVID. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they're going to play that because those kids must be about 30 by now. But there has been a very long running series of um, comics series based on and around the world of Stranger Things. And the latest four part serial starts this week. Stranger Things Kamchatka. Uh, obviously, I think is going to lead in a little bit to season four. Uh, a Russian scientist is kidnapped by Soviet troops, leaving nothing for his two teenage children but a mysterious case and a lot of questions. While their father is forced to weaponize a monster brought back from the US, the two teenagers embark on a dangerous journey to liberate their dad, with the help from a very unlikely ally, an old badass KGB spy. Now, all of the Dark Horse comics uh, based on Stranger Things have been brilliant. This is no exception. It doesn't really, or at least issue one doesn't really, involve any characters that you'll recognise from the show. But it's very much got that same creepy 80s vibe going on. Uh, it's written by uh, Michael Moresi, who was a guest on this show when it was Geeking with Destination Venus many, many, many moons ago. Uh, and there's some fantastically atmospheric art by uh, Todor Hiristov, and I apologise for mispronouncing that name because I certainly 
did. Uh, published, as I said, by Dark Horse Comics, it's £3.50 from all good comic shops, including the one under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate. And if you like Stranger Things, you are going to like this. And as a diehard Stranger Things fan, I have to say, one of the biggest issues I'm facing in my life is that there's not enough Stranger Things in it. The comics have been a very welcome respite, and this series will keep me going until season four drops. And since we started with a franchise, let's continue in the same vein and take a look at the gloriously ridiculous Godzilla versus the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Yeah, you heard me. Godzilla versus the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Now, I stopped thinking that mashups were absurd when I read Batman versus Elmer Fudd and discovered it was one of the best straight Batman stories I'd ever read. So I always approach mashups like this with an open mind. And I've got to be honest, for a given value of being really dumb fun, this is really good dumb fun. Basically, we have the Power Rangers in hot pursuit of the villain Rita and her goons after she steals uh, a magic powerful gem from a monastery. And they end up dimension hopping to a different Earth, an Earth where the Power Rangers have never protected anybody, but a world nevertheless which is protected by Godzilla. And then big monsters hitting each other happens, and it's glorious. Very um, nimbly written by horror writer Cullen Bunn, uh, with art by Freddie Williams II, uh, colours by Andrew Dalhouse, and letters by uh, Joanna Natalie. It's not highbrow. It's not high art. I don't think if they ever made a TV adaptation of this, it would ever find its way to BBC Four. But it's fun. If you like the Power Rangers, this has got the energy. If you like Godzilla, then this has got massive, great monsters and mechs knocking seven bells out of each other. What more could you possibly ask for? Issue one is out now. It's 350 from Boom Studios. Uh, well, Boom and IDW. Uh, Boom, I presume, have Godzilla and IDW have the rights to the Power Rangers. So this is a an inter-publishing house team-up. And as I say, it's not going to change the world, but it is fun. And if you like the Power Rangers and or Godzilla, you might want to check it out. But if it is a more arty, highbrow comic that you crave, then I offer you Ghost Cage issue one. This is a very different proposition. For a start, it's in black and white. Um, it's got a it, it isn't manga, I need to stress that, but it's got a much more manga-y feel about it than most Western comics do. A very, very dynamic art. You can probably hear me whiffling the pages as I look through it while I'm talking to you. Uh, it's a really interesting story. First of all, this is a limited series, not an ongoing uh, and it is quite expensive. It's four ninety nine an issue, but each issue is easily double the thickness of a regular comic. So it is, in fact, a lot of comic for your money, and it's really quite good value just in terms of quantity. In terms of quality, definitely there too. If you are a comics aficionado, then you will have heard of the artist Nick Dragotta. Uh, he was the the guy behind the pencil on the critically acclaimed East of West series, uh, which finished a couple of years ago. This is an all new project. Basically, we're in a, a near-ish future. And the Megacorp power plant falls under attack by terrorists. And when that happens, the super scientist who revolutionised energy production and controls all the energy on Earth sends his ultimate creation, accompanied by a moderately adequate employee, to destroy his most monstrous secrets. We follow this creation and this David Brent kind of character. 
Um, as they travel through the power plant, dealing with the consequences of this uber scientist's hubris, it's great fun. Uh, it's written by Nick Dragotta and Caleb Goldner, um, with art by Nick Dragotta. It looks stunning. Black and white comics aren't for everybody, I know, but you really should give this one a try. Um, it's properly black and white. They're using dots for the shading. And it looks stunning. As I say, it, it, if you told me this was Japanese, I'd believe you. Uh, although it also has kind of a European comics look about it. Great dialogue. Although there's really only one person doing the talking. And it's such a delicious high concept. They spend almost no time on world building, and yet the world we're in feels fully realised, and I feel that I fully understood what we're dealing with here, uh, which is no mean feat. So it's from Image Comics, uh, which again is usually a good sign. It's oversized in terms of it's not it's the usual dimensions. It's got more pages in it than normal, uh, and it's four ninety nine an issue. Possibly the best value comic on the on the rack this week, I would say. And I do not say that lightly. But speaking of things that are oversized, I also just want to mention Rogues, which is oversized in the annoying way, in that the dimensions of the actual pages are not standard US comic size. They're bigger, which makes it really hard to fit into a comics box. Which, I know I moan about this every time it happens, but it really winds me up. Still, there we are. I'm not in charge, I just have to live with it. So, Rogues, uh, written by the awesomely talented Joshua Williamson with art by Leo Max. This is the story of a bunch of crooks. They used to work as a team. They were the Rogues. Ten years ago, they broke up and went their separate ways. But the last decade has not been kind to these blue-collar blue super crooks. Caught in an endless cycle of prison, rehab, dead-end jobs, broken relationships, probation, and endless, endless restitution fees, the rogues have had enough of paying for their crimes. Fortunately for them, Captain Cold has a plan. One last job. One last job that will leave them all richer than they could possibly imagine and completely free of their criminal pasts. All they've got to do is survive it. This reimagines the rogues villains team um, in a much grittier way. Um, this is a neo-noir heist that is genuinely chilling. Uh, it's a DC black label book, which means it is not suitable for children. Um, I don't think I would go so far as to say it's not safe for work, but, you know, maybe don't read it on the bus, is what I'm saying. The art is sublime. Uh, the dialogue is snappy. Uh, and the plot so far, uh, obviously, we've only read issue one. The plot so far, utterly engrossing. I'm loving it. I love a heist. Uh, it is oversized, which means it is more expensive than normal comics. It is $5.99. And it's out this week from DC's Black Label. All of these dropped this week. They are all available from good comic shops, including the one under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate. Uh, there are links to places where you can buy these titles online in the show notes. That's at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Uh, and I commend them to you. And honestly, this is one of those weeks when I really wish we had more time because there is so much good stuff on the rack this week. Um... Count Crowley, the amateur midnight monster hunter, returns uh, in a, a deliciously campy, um, schlocky horror comic about a drunk late night horror movie host. Dynamic duo of writer Scott Snyder and artist Greg Capullo are back together on the comic We Have Demons. There's a new Wolverine book. I mean, there's so much good stuff this week. But Time's Winged Chariot draws ever near and we have to move on. 
So, on we go, and it's time to keep recommending things, because I have got some podcast recommendations. The first of which is Marvel's Wastelanders. Now, there have been several seasons of this so far. Uh, the Marvel's Wastelanders Black Widow series has just finished. Uh, we've previously had uh, Old Man Quill, uh, and I think there's been a couple of others. And they're set in a possible future of the Marvel Universe. This is a future where the villains won. The Red Skull is president of the United States. Most of the Avengers are dead. And all of this happened on V-Day, like 20, 30 years before the Wastelanders era. Any Marvel heroes that have survived are old. And America has kind of come to accept that this is the way things are. There are no heroes anymore. Wastelanders Black Widow tells the story of what happens when a surveillance officer who works in a kind of high, high-end, high-rise uh, apartment building realises that the new resident, Helen Black, may not be all that she seems, and that Helen Black may not be her real name. Part spy thriller, part office politics, it's brilliant. Uh, featuring the voice talents of Susan Sarandon as Black Widow, it is a real work of audio drama. I loved every single second of it, and it's free to download. And if you like that, as I say, there is also Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Quill uh, and Old Man Hawkeye. So check those out and take a peek at a possible future of the Marvel Universe. And if we're going to be talking about the Marvel Universe in relation to podcasts, there are two other obvious ones to draw to your attention. The first is This Week in Marvel which is a occasionally too upbeat uh, look at what's going on each week with Marvel. That's Marvel Comics, Marvel TV, Marvel Movies, Marvel Merch. Anything that's happening in the world of Marvel, they will be talking about. It's always up to date, and it is a great way to keep up to date with what's going on in the wacky world of Marvel. But for a more in-depth look at things that happen at Marvel, you might also want to check out Marvel's Voices. Now, this is a podcast that inspired an occasional series of comics uh, because Marvel's Voices focuses on what's going on with Marvel and diversity. So uh, creators of colour, um, creators with disabilities, characters of colour, characters with disabilities, all the stuff that's not the usual stuff gets talked about on Marvel's Voices. It's a really interesting podcast which really goes into some depth on what representation means and when it's good and when it's just lip service and what people are trying to achieve with this kind of thing. Basically, what you get is a lot of very insightful, very thought-provoking conversation between really talented people who really do have something to say. And then finally, the digital human with Dr. Alex Krutowski, is an absolutely brilliant show. Uh, it's also on Radio 4, but it is available as a podcast, which is how I happen to consume it. Dealing with the way modern digital life affects us all as humans, both for the good and for the bad. Uh, Dr. Krutowski looks at all of the impacts that various digital services and apps affect the way humans operate, how we socialise, how we work, how we interact with each other and with the online sphere, and what kind of effect that has on us as people. It's always, always fascinating to get some of the best people on to talk about their work, uh, and it's delivered in an accessible way. You don't have to be a massive tech nerd to get this. You just have to be interested in the field. And if you're a geek, you surely, surely are. Uh, and just so that we're clear, people who were around in the 90s, yes, this is the same Alex Grotowski who used to present Bits, the video game review show on Channel 4 uh, back in the mid to late 90s. Uh, there was her and uh, Emily Booth. And uh, I think there was another Emily. I think there were two Emilys. Was it? So the two Emmys or two Alexes? I've forgotten. 
Um, but I loved that show. And obviously, Alice Kratosky has gone on to be an academic uh, and to work in the more cerebral field of the digital world, but still got that same lightness of touch, that same entertaining accessibility going on. And I, it's a brilliant way to keep abreast of everything that's going on in the digital realm. Now that brings us to the Geek Community Notice Board. And I haven't got any this week. It's been a very quiet week for geeks, although I will like to just report the very successful Geek Pub Quiz return last Sunday at Major Tom's Social. I sadly was not able to to attend because I uh, had commitments elsewhere. I, I don't think they missed me. I really don't. But by all accounts, a great time was had by all. And obviously, they are back soon with yet another Geek Pub Quiz. Uh, I'm not sure if they're going to make this monthly or bi-monthly. Um, obviously, as it has with everybody, over the last two years, uh, the organisers' lives have changed somewhat. They have more responsibilities and less time. So it, they may not be able to keep the schedule that they used to keep in the before times. But it is still the best geek quiz around. I was absolutely gutted to miss it this month, and I will certainly be at the next one. As ever, if you have any kind of geeky event going on, let us know, and we will shout it across the airwaves and through the electrons of the internet, so that as many people as possible get to find out about it. Just drop us a line, info at destinationvenus.co.uk, and tell us what you've got going on, when it is and where it is. We will do the rest. There is no charge for this service. Uh, it's just something that we do because we like to help out other geeks. That email address is also where you should send any comments, queries, ideas for things you think we ought to cover, anything at all that you want to let us know, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. We read every email that comes in. We are running out of time, so there'll be no science segment this week, and we're going to keep the TV chat to an absolute minimum as well, uh, because it's mostly Disney Plus again, for goodness sake. I promise you, I promise you, Disney Plus are not paying me for this. All right, these are not paid endorsements. I'm not going on about it because there's any kind of financial gain in it for me at all. Although Disney, if you're listening, I absolutely would take your money. But it just genuinely does seem to be that all of the interesting stuff right now is happening at Disney Plus. We are mere days away from Moon Knight dropping at the end of this month. I think it's like six days. If you listen to this on the day it drops, uh, and Morbius is not that far behind, so we've got all of that stuff going on. Over at Netflix, we no longer have any Marvel properties; they are all now to be found at Disney Plus. Uh, I'm very much enjoying a rewatch of Daredevil right now. I can't quite bring myself to watch Jessica Jones. I love that first series of Jessica Jones, but David Tennant is just terrifying. And knowing what happens to Malcolm, Malcolm makes me sad. But that's all over that. What is still happening at Netflix? Well, uh, Stranger Things, as we said earlier, is on its way. That's happening in the not too distant future. I think that's May. And of course, Netflix also has The Witcher, which is another key geeky property. But beyond that, I don't really see that Netflix has all of that much going for it as far as a channel to attract geeks goes. So here's a bit of a plea. If you are watching something on Netflix or Amazon Prime that is amazing and geeky, let me know, because I don't want to keep banging on about Disney Plus properties. Disney has enough viewers, frankly. Even better, if anybody has any recommendations for good geeky TV that isn't on the streaming services at all, but can be found on actual network telly, I definitely want to know about that. If I'm missing stuff, I want to know. So, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Let me know what it is that you're watching and enjoying, and maybe I'll check it out. One of the things I am going to check out, I have just discovered that the whole of Supernatural 
is available on Amazon Prime. Now, I've never watched Supernatural, but Helen, former geek at the gate and uh, queen of geeks, has often raved about it. And maybe it's time I checked it out. Uh, so, yeah, might be getting some Supernatural chat from me over the next few weeks. Uh, oh, I should say also that um, seeing him turn up as Marshall Cobb in the book of Boba Fett made me think I should check out Timothy Elephant's Justified, which is also streaming on Amazon Prime. And it's not what I thought it was. It's much more of a sort of police procedural for rednecks than I thought it was. And, you know, and it, I know the term redneck is offensive, but I, that's how they play it. I don't know how accurate the portrayal of the people of that neck of the woods actually is, but they really do on that show seem to be leaning into the idea that the American South is full of quite stupid racists, which I'm not sure that's a stereotype I would have leaned into myself. Um, it's an enjoyable little show. Timothy Oliphant is a decent actor. Does the whole man with no name, broody, silent Western dude quite well. But as I say, the first few episodes, I thought some of the stereotyping was a little bit lazy. But that's it for the TV chatter. Um, one final thing. I did mention this last week, but it's something that I really do want to get out there. I promise you, this isn't as self-serving as it sounds. Before I owned a comic store, I was a teacher. And teaching is one of those jobs. It's quite hard to stop doing it. So one of the things that I did in the before times was going to schools and give talks about comics. How to make them, how to read them, maybe a bit of comics history, how to design characters, how to use pictures to tell stories, all of that kind of stuff, with the aim of promoting reading and literacy. I was an English teacher, I can't help it. The pandemic is not over, but the schools are open, and we are beginning to return to something that looks a little bit like normal. And I would like to get out there and do it again. I've already been to one school, uh, a primary school, and I have a, a tentative connection with another primary school in Harrogate to, uh, to go and do something with them. If you are a parent and you have kids at a primary school or a secondary school in the Harrogate area, I can get to Knaresborough, I can get to Ripon. If you are a kid who happens to go to a, a school in Harrogate, or the environment around, uh, or if you are a teacher and you want to get somebody in to help promote literacy and reading and work on work with kids on comics, I can do stuff in lessons. I can do stuff for lunchtime clubs. I can do stuff after school clubs. I want to get involved. I want to do stuff. It, this is how, this is one of the ways that I can give back to the community because that's what being a geek is all about. Being a geek is all about community. I keep saying this. So get in touch and I'll see what I can do for your school. So either email me at info at destinationvenus.co.uk or hit me up through the social medias. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. We're not on the others because I don't understand them. I'm 50, give me a break. Uh, or uh, go to www.destinationvenus.co.uk and click on the contact button and send us a message that way. But do, do please get in touch. Uh, I understand that school budgets are tight and I often find ways to do this kind of visit for free. Which I know, as somebody who used to organise people coming in to do stuff with kids, free is the very best price point. I also, for what it's worth... I uh, like to do some work with libraries too. So uh, if you are running a community library, or even if you're part of the North Yorkshire County Library Service, get in touch. Although if you're part of the North Yorkshire County Library Service, I've probably been in touch with you already. But for now, that is it. We have just enough time to remind you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature from Venus Rising Media and is engineered in Harrogate by me. We'll be back next week with more of the same geeky fare. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. And above all else, stay safe, stay sane, and stay geeky. Until the next time, we go geeking. <laughs>